This episode of Ready or Not was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I was living in New York and I woke up to this sudden longing to have a baby. I was in my mid-30s. I was in a long-term relationship with an American man. I tried to talk myself out of it because it felt counter to my ambitions. I couldn't really reconcile this idea of I want a baby, but I also want a career. And I, it wasn't that one dream died and the, it was replaced by the other. They were sort of running in parallel and it felt illogical to me. Like it almost felt like an anti-feminist thing. Like I'm not going to have a baby because, you know, I'm just going to end up a domestic slave. Alexandra Collier is a writer, mother of one and the author of Inconceivable a newly released memoir about her journey into solo parenthood. In a former life, she lived in a beautiful, light-filled Brooklyn brownstone in New York with the man she loved. But when she woke up to a ravenous hunger to have a baby that her partner didn't share, her life took a sharp turn. She found herself back home in Melbourne at 37, single, heartbroken and living with her parents. Her reproductive timeline was rapidly outpacing her romantic life. And after a period of dating like it was a sport, she began to explore a controversial option that a lot of people have a lot to say about. Conceiving a baby with donor sperm. Here, she shares that journey with us. From Brooklyn to Melbourne, from shacked up to single, from maiden to mother. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the tenacious and talented Alexandra Collier. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk about your book, but before we've got a few things to cover, can you start by introducing yourself and your family? Sure. I am a solo parent, so it's me and my son who is three years old. Before we get to him, can you tell us a bit about your career to date? You've had a pretty amazing career spanning different countries. Yeah, I started out as a playwright. I moved to New York when I was in my late 20s with this kind of naive ambition that a slightly delusional and naive ambition that I could just make it as a playwright, which is, I think is a great way to move to New York. It's better to be naive and delusional because it's a really tough place to live and I ended up staying for 10 years, which was a surprise to me, but I wanted to move to New York because I wanted to be a serious playwright and that's where playwrights are taken seriously. And I had a great sort of career trajectory there. I, you know, had plays that were produced off Broadway. I worked with amazing actors. I did some incredible developments and residencies. You can go to some amazing places in the States, the McDowell Colony and went to this amazing residency in Wyoming. They, they, they're really good at funding writers there to develop their work, sort of in these far-flung locations where they bring you lunch every day. And I also worked simultaneously in various different copywriting jobs because I don't want to give anyone the illusion that playwriting pays the bills, <laughs> that being an artist will solely support you because... It doesn't. So I did that alongside my playwriting. It was sort of my, you know, my day job, which was funding 
my life after hours. There's not many writers that don't have that sort of commercial side to their writing to pay the bills, are there? Yeah, you have to teach or do copywriting or, you know, I did teach as well. I taught at Brooklyn College where I studied, did a master's there. And so, yeah, I did all that stuff. And I ended up working at Showtime for a while at the TV network in advertising, which was great. Actually, I got to watch a lot of TV shows and read a lot of scripts. (laughs) So towards the end of my time in New York, I started moving towards writing for screen and I've written for print as well for news stuff. And now I've pivoted in a different direction, which lined up with the pandemic and written a book, a memoir called Inconceivable, which is about becoming a solo mum by choice, my son's donor conceived. So that was a good time to write a book these last few years because theatre died. And I also, once I moved back from New York, I was sort of no longer as as enamoured of theatre. It really had taken my sort of blood, sweat and tears it's just such an intense industry to work in and there's so much fundraising and sort of hard scrabble stuff you have to do to actually get a show on and I was really worn out by the time I moved back so that's my loose career trajectory so now I write a couple of days a week on my own stuff and then I work a couple of days a week still at an ad agency doing copywriting. You've got writing down, Pat, from every angle. I cannot wait to dive into that deeper. But before we do, when does the persistent thought of becoming a mother start to enter the picture for you? I was living in New York and I woke up to this sudden longing to have a baby. I was in my mid-30s. I was in a long-term relationship with an American man. We were living in a lovely Brooklyn brownstone. Everything was going well. There was nothing wrong with our relationship, but I wanted to have a child and he wasn't ready to do that yet. I remember at the time sort of wrestling with the idea because it did intersect with my ambitions and I was thinking there's no way I can have a baby and live in New York and be a playwright and, you know, carry a stroller up subway stairs. It's just the most inhospitable city to have children in. And I tried to talk myself out of it because it felt counter to my ambitions. And I was an M, I guess, an ambitious person and had been working so hard to build my career in New York and you have to be ambitious there like the city is sort of powered by ambition and by work and if you go there and you don't have a purpose you kind of get lost you're like flotsam on the tide so I couldn't really reconcile this idea of I want a baby but I also want a career and I it wasn't that one dream died and it was replaced by the other they were sort of running in parallel and it felt illogical to me like it almost felt like an anti-feminist thing like I'm not going to have a baby because you know I'm just going to end up a domestic slave and I don't want to do that I'm an ambitious person who's worked so hard to get to where I am like why would I give that up and theatre is not a great place to work as a mother and the hours are not good um the pay is not good there was so many things that about it that just seemed like the wrong choice with my career. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just a biological urge. Like this is just my dumb body wanting a baby. And then I said that to a friend one day, another writer, I said, oh, I just think it's just my biological, you know, desires. And he said, well, what's wrong with your biological desires? And it was such a revelation to me because I thought, yeah, well, what is wrong with that? Like, what is wrong with listening to your body and what it wants? And that really shifted things for me. And then I thought, well, no, I, I do want this and I'm really clear about it. I have this, like, it was almost like being possessed, you know, the desire to have a baby. It was this intense longing, which I've written about in the book. 
which is a phenomenon that a lot of women experience. There's some research around it that says you can literally wake up one day. It sort of strikes like lightning. There's some people who, you know, always want kids, some people who never want kids, and some people it like hits them. And, you know, of course, there's people who are ambivalent too. But um, I think it's fascinating, that phenomenon of just being struck. And I was struck. I always thought, yeah, I'll have kids in this sort of loosey-goosey way. And then it really became so clear to me. And it also became terrifyingly clear that my romantic life was out of sync with my reproductive timeline given that my partner was not wanting to have kids and I thought I can't really stay around and wait for that to happen so I ended up leaving that relationship which was very counterintuitive because it was a happy good relationship there was nothing wrong with it and you know it's it's hard to find a good person it's hard to find a good man and (laughs) in particular so I ended up single heartbroken moving back to Melbourne where I'm from, living with my parents, broke, convinced though that I would meet someone because everyone said to me, don't worry, you'll meet someone, you know, you'll meet someone. So I kind of returned to Melbourne to lick my wounds. I was homesick anyway. It was felt like a good time to get out at the end of this heartbreak. And I guess I also put my career, my theatre career a bit on hold by moving back or I took a step away from it in that I moved to Australia. So I'm suddenly back in this old scene that I was no longer connected to that I sort of had to start again in in a way so I started writing more for screen because I just felt like I needed to recalibrate I needed to sort of get my mojo back was that hard because it's really interesting the way you just put it because I listened to a Mamma Mia podcast recently where Nell Frizzle has written a book and coined the term the panic years and it sounds like that's exactly the feeling you had so was it really hard jostling with the identity of a relationship that was going well that you then exit, leaving a city that I guess you loved and you built up a real career in and then moving back to Melbourne, there was a lot at play there. It wasn't just deciding to have a baby, it was ending a relationship and moving. Yeah, I love that Nell Frizzell book, The Panic Years. I think everyone should read it. It's really great. Um, She has a similar struggle with her boyfriend where he doesn't want to have kids, but she convinces him. I don't know if you've read the book, it's crazy. She writes like 30 post-it notes to him saying all the ways that he could become a great dad it's just (laughs) anyway it's incredible but um I yeah it was a hard time it was a it was a heartbreaking time in some ways but in other ways I was back with my family who I'd really missed I was back in Australia which is the good life compared to New York you know we have free healthcare. we have jobs that are not paid terrible minimum wage. We have so many benefits. There's so many, we have the clean, the green, the easy life here, you know, in so many ways. We have this gorgeous outdoor city we can be in and beaches we can drive to. And uh, so I really felt like Melbourne and returning to my family was kind of healing in a way. It was a bit of a balm to my sort of broken heart and to be around friends and to be back in Australia was just exactly what I needed. I did sort of have moments of just, oh my God, I'm such a loser. I can't believe this is my life, which I write about in the book, sort of seeing driving past a woman on a street corner who I'd gone to uni with and she was with her baby in her stroller or in her pram. And I just thought, oh my God, why, why is that not me? You know, why am I here at 37 and single? And why have I not found that life? Like, how is it that everyone else can do that? And that I'm unable to somehow I really felt like it was a personal failing and I think we often do feel like being single is a personal failing which is a lie but 
there were sort of devastating moments where I thought, you know, I should have my life more together by now. I should have met someone by now. I shouldn't be sort of starting over again. You know, it was hard to sort of find my way back in. But I think the beauty and privilege of coming from Australia and coming from Melbourne is that you do have this sort of old network that you can step back into. And eventually I found jobs and a studio at the Abbotsford Convent where I was writing, which was just like a phenomenal space to be. I never really picked up my theatre career again in the same way. Like I went back to New York and worked on a show and did some developments back in the US, sort of going back and forth because I had a green card. But I feel like now I've kind of defected from the theatre. And part of that, I think, was moving home and sort of taking a slightly different path away from that. Mm -hmm. It's incredible the way society views, as you say, like being single in your late 30s as a failure when it's anything but. But it did lead you to date when you got home as though it almost was a sport with that view of having a baby until you all of a sudden woke up one day and you're like, hang on, I'm better off being happy on my own and having a baby on my own than finding a relationship that maybe doesn't serve me in any other way besides being able to have a baby. Can you tell us about that time in your life? Yeah, I think that's why I wrote this book, Inconceivable, because there were so many, I know so many single women in their 30s mainly who uh, want to have a family and they're desperate to meet someone, anyone, like whoever, that guy walking down the street, he'll do before it's too late. And there's this sort of pressure like uh, hovering over their dating life, which was definitely hovering over mine. And I felt like becoming a solo parent was the second best option. And so I really hope with this book that I can destigmatize that path and that people can see that they can choose that the life that they want and the family they want without having to wait for someone else's approval or permission or sperm. So I think it was important for me to continue dating during that period and to sort of pursue romance to its kind of end point. I mean, I don't want to say it's end point because that sounds like miserable, like I'll never... <laughs> fall in love again, but to really pursue all my options. So I went to fertility appointments at the same time as going on dates and dating people and meeting people online and meeting people at my yoga class. And I really did treat it like it was my job. And part of that was people kept telling me I would meet someone. Mm. And, you know, I met some people. Um, I met a lot of people. <laughs> and people want to believe, we all want to believe that the romantic trajectory the romantic narrative is going to win like that we're all on the side of romance you know we have all swallowed the myth that we will find our great love and that we will be complete and we've been kind of inculcated with that as children especially as little girls and I wanted to believe it too it's a very seductive narrative I mean I still want to believe it some days I think oh you know well it's probably still going to happen for me and it's not that I don't think love does happen for people, but I do think that the romantic ideal around love is fairly mythical. You know, that there are a lot of hard aspects to any relationship, especially a partnership where you have children. So I just did not want to commit to having a baby with someone who I knew it wouldn't work out with long term. I didn't think that was fair to me, to the child, to either of us. You know, there were those possibilities. I did meet some nice people and they potentially would have had a kid with me, but it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. It would have been settling for someone who was fine, but I could see that there were really serious red flags coming down the line. And I know some women have done that and people do what they need to do. I also, I don't want to critique that or say like 
that's a stupid choice because I think we have such a strong urge often to have children that sometimes you'll get there by any means possible, you know, and I can see how that is appealing, you know, to Mm. if you've, find someone who seems like good enough and some people say you should just find someone good enough you know there was this Laurie Moore article she's a therapist in the US who wrote an article for the Atlantic called Mr Good Enough like just find Mr Good Enough and settle for him and yeah I have very mixed feelings about that because I think there's a difference between accepting someone's flaws like we're all flawed no one's perfect and also seeing very clearly that this is the person it's this is a person it's not going to work out with mm. it's so interesting too that the narrative still is around finding a partner rather than being happy in our own selves so i think that's exactly. fascinating and it also comes back to a really interesting point that i read that you wrote in an article about the idea of selfishness when you started to look into assisted conception you saw a lot that that was selfish which blows my mind that people would rather see a heterosexual relationship that wasn't really working bring a kid into that environment where the partners might not get along it's actually just the solo mothers that are selfish yeah it's a very strange idea i think that it's born of this idea that a child should have a mother and a father and the nuclear family hetero family is the ideal for any family and that that is the situation that you should raise a child in like we still really believe in that structure and you know that structure can definitely work for some people but as we know there are many queer couples there are many single parents there are many people who start out in that family and do not end up together so you know there's a very high divorce rate there's no sort of guarantee that a partnership is necessarily going to continue but we're still really married to that idea and what I found in writing this book and in sort of researching this idea and thinking about it as I've been going through this over the last few years is that what's necessary for a child to flourish is not the presence of of a father in their life it's not the presence of two parents it's the structure and quality of family relationships and you know queer families have been proving that for decades they've had to do the studies and present them to the public to say look it's okay for us to have kids so I really take comfort in that idea and I yeah I think it's it's strange that people think no matter what even if it's a terrible relationship you should have a man around you know and there are other ways to have male figures in your child's life if you want to have male role models in your child's life for instance there's my my own dad my brother who's very active in my child's life you know there's other people who can play that role I mean I think if there are men out there listening you know if you have a female friend who wants to have a kid and you're a great friend you can play a part in that child's life like there's no mm. reason not to I have other dads who my son loves hanging out with and I think that's really special that he has all those great people around. So you do start to look more deeply into assisted conception. What did you find? And also, did you feel an added pressure on how that might affect work and parenting if you did enter it solo? Yeah, I definitely did. Uh, That was a struggle. And especially throughout my pregnancy, I was very anxious about money and how I would survive and how I'd make this work. And I think a lot of parents feel like that, even the ones who are partnered. How the hell am I going to raise this kid and pay for the nappies and the childcare and all the things that come along with it? So there's no easy answer to that. I mean, if anyone's thinking of going into this, I would say start saving money for your maternity leave now. You know, don't do what I did and 
well, I mean, I worked as an artist for a long time in New York, which is definitely not a great way to set up your financial future <laughs> um, <laughs> to live in a city that will bankrupt you, basically. So it is good to think about those things and to do a budget and to consider it from those angles, if nothing else, to reassure yourself and not so that you don't feel anxious about it. You know, we're lucky to live in a country where there is support from the government if you're a single parent. And we do have paid parental leave. And I know they're extending that. That's gradually going to get longer. So, you know, I'm loath to maybe point those things out because I think some people might say, oh, single mothers on welfare, you know, you're just taking the government's money. But those kind of social security systems don't exist in a lot of other places like the US. And they're an incredible privilege. And or maybe they're just a necessity. And we are raising as mothers, all of us, the next generation of workers. So we're actually contributing to the economy by raising children. So I don't think it shouldn't be compensated or supported by government. It should. Mm, I agree. It's an absolute necessity. I was actually on a podcast earlier being interviewed, which is a weird change in dynamic, but I did a bit of research before on the sort of parental leave available to places like Norway. And lo and behold, Norwegians are the happiest people in the world. So go figure. And if you're supporting parents, they're more likely to perhaps go back to work and then contribute to the economy. So if you don't care about our happiness, at least care about the economy. Exactly. And it works better for everyone anyway. So then you do actually decide to go forward with assisted conception. Can you tell us a bit about that process? It was an interesting process that I would say, you know, isn't just about the two weeks that you do fertility treatment or hormones. There were a lot of appointments leading up to that. There were two counseling sessions that I had to do, which anyone who's doing assisted reproductive treatment has to do. Uh, there was the choice of a sperm donor, which was a difficult choice to make. And I went through Melbourne IVF to have my son and I chose to use a donor through their sperm bank. Um, it was important for me to use a donor that way because there are processes in place that sort of protect you and the donor and protect the child in the future because they can be connected to the donor. The actual fertility process itself was in some ways fairly straightforward. I was quite lucky. But I do know many women who are solo mothers who have had many years and countless rounds of IVF. And it's a very emotional, expensive roller coaster to be on. So I was aware going in, you know, this might not work. There was sort of a 15 to 18% chance, I think, of getting pregnant at the age of 39 when I started doing it. So that is sort of a consideration too when you think about solo parenting. It, the IVF process or the fertility process can be quite harrowing and expensive. So it's good to sort of consider who's going to support you through that if you're doing it alone and who you can talk to about it. And in my case, I found this incredible community of solo mothers online on Facebook. There's a Australian Facebook group and then there's branches for each state. And that was a game changer for me, sort of finding that community, especially in making the choice, because I could see that it was possible that other people had achieved it and that they were still living their lives. They were thriving, not just surviving. And they were really, it sounds so cliche, but you do need to see some, see that it's possible. Like you do need heroes. You do need mentors. You do need support to know that you can achieve something in life. And this was one of those situations where that was really important to me. And so then you do eventually get pregnant. How did pregnancy go for you, especially from that working point of view? 
it was intense. I was working, I started working full time. I had a job and then I went on a contract after I got pregnant. I was trying to negotiate it in my early pregnancy without telling them that I was pregnant because I was shifting from freelance to a contract. And as we all know, (laughs) it does not behoove you to tell your employer that you're pregnant, especially when you're negotiating a contract. God, the mental load starts well before our babies come into the world. Yeah, it was so I felt like I was carrying around this secret, which I was, and I was trying to keep it to myself, but I was really nauseous. So I was like eating all the time at work. Like I had this drawer that I was like pulling saladas out of. Like, a pregnancy drawer. Yeah, it was a pregnancy. <laughs> it had like ginger candies and saladas. And the whole day I was eating them to stave off the nausea. And my colleague just kept looking at me like she was sort of giving me these really quizzical glances, like, why are you eating the entire day? So I was keeping a secret, trying to negotiate this permanent contract, trying to ask for maternity, paid maternity leave, which they did not have and they were not going to budge on. Um, But I thought, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And I got to about 15 weeks and I thought, I've got to tell them. Like I was planning to go to New York for a few months to work on this musical production. So they had graciously given me time off to do that, unpaid leave. Because, of course, all my dreams culminated at one moment, which is that I got this amazing off-Broadway production in New York of this musical I'd been running for years, and I was pregnant. So I was, like, six months pregnant, and I thought, I've got to tell them, because otherwise I'm going to come back to work and I'll be six months pregnant. <laughs> and I can't really <laughs> go, ta-da! You know, here it is. Yeah, this this can't have happened in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I eventually told them, but it was, it's so bizarre how you know difficult it is to tell your employer you're pregnant I mean I even some of the married people I heard them say that you know I was really nervous about that there's this sense that still by being pregnant you're somehow letting everyone down you know you're Mm. like you're leaving people you know in the lurch that you know you're causing difficulty because you're gonna have to take time off work I always think about this too it's just like quitting but actually you're coming back so you're more committed you know like why do we feel so guilty people move jobs people come and go but we feel this immense guilt I think we feel this guilt and also this sort of prescient sense that things may not be the same and that there's our future feels uncertain in a lot of ways. And I do know a lot of women who've returned to work after maternity leave and been demoted or been sort of sidelined to a different job where they're not doing, don't have as much responsibility or so Mm. I think there's sort of an anxiety around it, which is very founded. And for me, I was also anxious about telling my employer because I was single and nobody That's knew really fertility treatment. So it was really going to be sort of a bit of a salacious revelation. And, you know, I'm not going to spoiler it. You have to read the book to see what happens. But <laughs> that was a kind of a challenging moment because I was faced with sort of my own ideas around this thing. You know, did I feel confident in it or did I feel this sort of sense of shame? And I sort of had to wrestle with that in telling my day job and then I went to New York so you go to New York at six months pregnant by the way and you're working really hard over there I imagine yeah I think I went about 20 weeks and then I was yes we were rehearsing every day for three weeks it was very intense it was exhausting the show was there was a lot of pressure on the show and it was at this at the public theater which is a big venue in New York it was at Joe's pub it was like a dream come true Whenever you see someone's Instagram and they look like they're living their best life, just know that they probably aren't. (laughs) They're probably under the most (laughs) pressure they've ever been under in their entire life. On Instagram, I was like in New York and I was pregnant and I was doing a show off Broadway at the public theatre. And 
But in reality, I was like exhausted and tired and stressed and worried about money because I wasn't really earning money working on the show. You know, it barely covered the cost of my flight. And that was very anxiety inducing. And I think in retrospect, if I had my time over, I would not do that to myself again. I would not travel halfway around the world while pregnant and try and rehearse it off Broadway show. Um, it was a lot. Did anyone... Did any loved ones at that time try and stop you from going? Was it this thing where you had to justify why you were going? No, nobody did. Nobody did. Maybe they know how stubborn I am. I think they just, they sort of maybe were like internally rolling their eyes, but they were just like, great. Yeah, you go to New York, you're pregnant. My dad kept saying to me, you're overdoing it. You're overdoing it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then one day I was walking this long walk across the Manhattan Bridge from Brooklyn and like something twinged in my pelvis and I was sort of like suddenly in pain. I was like, I think I am overdoing it, you know? <laughs> like, what am I doing? Um, it was great. Look, it was, I I don't, I couldn't give that up. It was it was such an important moment and, you know, I'm glad I did it, but it was it was intense and it was it was not like financially the best decision at that moment in time. I was actually planning to stay even longer in New York and be a celebrant at my friend's wedding. And it was this like big gay wedding and I was going to be the celebrant and there were celebrities coming. And I was like picturing myself in like a kind of like giant, like outfit with a big bow in my belly. Like I was going <laughs> to be living this dream. But I, in the end, I left after the show finished because I was just so exhausted and I needed to fly back while my body wasn't going to just be aching the whole time on a 20 hour flight. And hindsight's a beautiful thing. I mean, if you didn't do the show, you would have regretted it way more, I imagine. So even though it sounded pretty intense, sounds like it was a pretty amazing life experience. So then eventually your baby boy comes into the world. Can you tell us about those first few months of motherhood? And did you put any extra preparation into finding your village or your support network, knowing that there wasn't a partner at home with you full time? Yeah, I hired a doula. Um, actually you interviewed her on the podcast, Gab Nankuro. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah. Love Gab and highly recommend her if anyone's looking for a doula in Melbourne. She's also written a book called The Birth Space, which is fantastic. And I also hired a postpartum doula, which was someone who like comes once a week for like six weeks and cooks for you and cleans and helps out. And that was amazing. It was not affordable, but it was incredible um wouldn't that be amazing if if the government paid for that for everyone for six weeks oh my goodness that would be so fantastic you need it you need something like that everyone does I mean she was working for a lot of families with you know two parents but I actually ended up my parents asked me to go stay with them after I gave birth which was just such a godsend and I stayed with them for three months and at the time, I remember actually sitting in the hospital and Gab was there and my mom and dad said, why don't you come stay with us? And I was like, yeah, 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 sort of whatever, kind of in this post-birth high. And they left the room and Gab said to me, go stay with them. Like, do not even think about it twice. Go stay with them. You need the help. And she said it in such a sort of serious, intense way that I was like, oh, yes, I, I see. Like, this is, I don't know what's coming down the pike here. So they were really generous and supportive and, you know, would feed me, bring me cups of water, you know, because you're just sort of like a human drink when you're breastfeeding the whole time and you can't really move and do stuff and feed yourself. So that was a real game changer for my life at that point in time. And then I moved back home because I really felt like I need to be back home an adult. I want to be back in my own place. And 
know. It's interesting. I think because maybe I had nothing to compare it to. Like I don't have another experience of parenting with someone else. I think some something sort of kicks in where you're like, I've got to do this. I've got to get it done. So I'm going to do it. It's, you know, you can't really feel too sorry for yourself. You don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. You've just got to get shit done when you have a baby. And, and you've got a beautiful baby. So there's nothing to feel sorry for yourself about. Exactly. And you've got it. And I had the, everything that I wanted, which was this, yeah, gorgeous baby. And of course, those first, you know, three, six months are incredibly challenging and difficult. And there's the sleeping stuff. There's the feeding stuff. There's so many elements of it. And some people have horrific experiences. Some people have postpartum, some depression. There's, you know, there's a lot to contend with. I felt like on the whole, given that I was on my own, I was having probably a fairly standard experience, but I felt like I was able to get through it. I think there's something about there's only you. So you're the one who has to get up in the middle of the night. So you just do it. You know, you don't spend too much time thinking about it. You sort of, what stops the sort of self-pity in a way is action. And there's a lot of action involved Mm. in raising a child. And then you just kind of got to keep moving forward with it. And so that's what I did. I'm sure there were, I know there were moments where I thought, oh my God, please, like, why is there not another set of hands here? But again, you know, my family, my brother, friends, I'm quite willing to pay babysitters to help me um, when I can afford it. Like all of those things, that constellation of all that community really helped. It's so important. sounds like you had a really good village around you. What did the return to work look like for you and what care was in place for your son? I put him down for daycare while I was pregnant. I thought that I would have to go back to work pretty quickly, like within three months because I was the sole provider. I am the sole provider. And ironically, the pandemic saved me. So I, because I was on unpaid maternity leave, they had to put me on JobKeeper. And so I was able to extend my maternity leave for a year and I was getting paid essentially. (laughs) Or, you know, I was getting JobKeeper every fortnight, which was basically supporting me. So that was really fantastic. You know, it, I wish that we had that kind of support for mothers all the time. And it was just this weirdly fortuitous stroke of luck that the ill fate of the pandemic sort of lined up with the good fortune of me getting supported by the government during that time. And it happened to a few other mothers in my parents' group too, that they were suddenly, you know, getting almost like a maternity leave pay because they were off work. So that was great. After a year, I I did do some writing during that first year. I wrote an article for The Good Weekend, which which is what led to this book contract. And after a year, I was talking to my employer about returning to the ad agency where I'd been working. And I wanted to sort of do a gradual return. You know, I was like, can I come in one day? Like, I just, I couldn't really fathom how I was going to, my son had only breastfed the whole time. He refused a bottle and he was only sort of. Oh, I know all about that. Yeah. He was only just taking solid. So I couldn't really be away from him more than a few hours anyway. I mean, unless it was at night, you know, he wasn't feeding that much anymore at night, but I was like, how am I going to pump and go back to work? And it seemed just incomprehensible at the time. And I remember saying to my employer, can I just start with one or two days until you know for a few months and then I'll come back for more days next year and this was sort of around September and he was like yeah yeah no problem no problem and then called me back a week later and said so we'd like you to start with three days 
And I was sort of like, well, that's what? That's not what you said. I can feel the chest tightening of that too. Like even of my employer calling me with that, like it's so stressful and it's not just about you getting back to work. There is so much involved with that, with you getting out of the door emotionally, physically, logistically, like it's huge. And the transition to daycare, like, which is massive. The first few months of daycare for your child or the first six months of daycare are really hard. And looking back on it, it sort of seems in difficult to even comprehend that it seemed so hard to go back to work but it really was and I know it is for so many women like I know people want to work like I wanted to be stimulated and I wanted to have adult conversations and to live in the world of adult thoughts not just baby thoughts all the time so there's nothing wrong with that but it is sort of the transition back to work is insane and I can't believe that some people have to do it really early at three months or six months and sort of wrestle with that so I yeah I was lucky in that because I'd had this sort of job keeper and that had kept me afloat I basically said to them look I'm not going to come back this is it felt like three days was too much at the time which of course in some ways is like an ideal amount now but I just it's a complicated thing but I felt like that particular workplace was not incredibly welcoming of mothers. There was no real space to pump. Like I would have had to be mm. in the shower cubicle or something. Um, <laughs> there was. It's funny as well with hindsight thinking about your office after becoming a breastfeeding person and being like, where did all those parents before me pump? Didn't yeah. cross my mind. Yeah, exactly. You just do not even have that on your radar. It's like you don't know where playgrounds are until you have a child. Yeah. And then you suddenly see all the playgrounds around and, and, you, <laughs> and you've walked past them for 10 years and they just, it was like they were invisible and suddenly like a magical wand's, you know, waved over them and they appeared. <laughs> so, yeah, I I just felt like I, I had this sort of gut feeling that it wasn't the right place to go back to. I knew the working hours could be intense. I just, there was a certain atmosphere in that workplace, which I felt like was not conducive to my new life as a mother. Mm. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to freelance. I'm going to just wait a couple of months till the beginning of the year and pick up some freelance work. And I could sort of string out what I had money-wise until then. And something else happened around that time as well, is sort of weirdly fortuitous thing where I'd written a pilot about a TV show called Inconceivable, funnily enough, about a single woman who decides to have a baby on her own. It was a comedy. It was sort of very loosely based on my life, kind of a slightly more heightened version of that. And that got optioned around that time. And so there were sort of some good things that were happening in my artistic career. So I was sort of buoyed by that as well. And also I wrote this article and then I got some offers from publishers to write a book, which, you know, I do not want anyone to think that a book advance is a living wage. It is not. The Australian Society of Authors just came out with their stats and most authors' wages are like well below the, below the poverty line. But, it, you know, it did help to have that little bit of money and then to sort of be freelancing and doing that at the same time. So I ha- so I started back at work kind of officially more like around a year and a year and four months after my son was born. I, I emailed an, another agency that I'd worked at years before and... The person who ran that is incredibly family friendly. She has four children. She understands the juggle. She's okay with me turning up when I want, leaving when I want, as long as I get the work done. And that was just such a blessing. And I now do that two days a week and do my own writing two days a week. When you were thinking about deciding to go the freelance route, were you nervous about the financial implications of, oh, it's not just me anymore. Like I need to be making this money. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was nerve wracking. I was lucky in that my old employer from a few years back straight away wanted me to come into work. Like I didn't even have to really look. I sent like one email and suddenly she was like, yes, I need someone now. And so it happened straight away. And she said, and I need someone ongoing for a few days a week. And then, you know, occasionally I do an extra day and now I'm on a part-time contract with them. So I don't know. It's funny. Things just sort of worked out. It was very lucky. And I'm not saying it hasn't been a stretch because paying for childcare, of course, is a ridiculous expense, even when you're getting, you know, a a large subsidy because you're single. And so, you know, childcare is subsidized for most of us, but the percentage depends on your income and your relationship and status and stuff like that. So there were shoestring months in those daycare years, but I sort of realized I was like worrying about money all the time, worrying about finances all the time. And that wasn't really, I kind of came to this piece of like having just enough to get by is enough. We have a good enough life. Like we rent an apartment. There's two of us. We have a roof. We have food. We have family. We have like, I have a job that seems to be ongoing. All of those things felt, and I have an employer who is family friendly, like most people would kill for that. And I had an artistic pursuit, which I am passionate about. So I was getting to write as well. So even though that was all during the pandemic, it was sort of like, I have this fulfilling artistic career. I have another career that's sort of helping pay the bills. And it felt like things had all just slotted into place. And so often I think in life, our anxieties take the form of things that never appear. Bad things can happen, but they happen in a different way that you don't anticipate. So I'm grateful that those things worked out. And I think as well, when you become a parent, I think you become, I'm not saying that people before they become parents aren't aware of what they want and what they don't want, but I'm getting that exact same urge as you where it's really not sitting well with me to go back to my corporate job. So, but because I have a son now, if I want to make this new freelance life work for me, I have to do everything in my power to make it work for me. So I think because you now have a child, even though it's perhaps more of a risk to take on little bits and pieces of work here and there, you find a way to make it work because you literally have to. Yeah, you do. And I found, I'm glad I didn't end up freelancing for lots of different clients. I did that a little bit sort of in the first year. I tried to have some other people, but that is stressful. It is hard to be a freelancer and to be invoicing different people and waiting for paychecks. And, you know, I just wrote an article for a well-regarded news organization, which I shall not name, and they have still not behaved me six months, six weeks later. So, you know, that, that sort of waiting for that money is frustrating. So I think if you can find a permanent part-time gig as a parent, it's the way to go. Even if you are a freelancer, I was a freelancer for a long time with that job. And I find that easier personally than being in the copywriting space, being in a sort of creative writing space, working for different clients sometimes can be difficult. It's easier to have an intermediary like an agency or someone who's dealing with the clients for you. Mm, less companies that you work for as opposed to, as you're saying, like having 10 spitting plates and forgetting which deadlines are where and all of that. Because quickly, yeah. even though we love the idea of flexibility with freelancing, that becomes more stressful than just showing up three days a week. And you could be working all the time. You can be writing after. And I have done this with my book. You know, there are nights where I'll be working. I've been working on it after hours. But I, you know, I feel like that's my passion. So I'm okay with that. I'm okay with doing that instead of watching TV some nights, you know. (laughs) But it's different when it's your job and you're having to check emails 24-7, you know, because you've got seven different employers on the the go. Mm. So it's almost about finding that balance between like pragmatism and passions and trying to make whatever works for your family. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think 
you know, I remember even like Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, saying she'd always worked in publishing for years and had a job to support her. And I just don't think there's any shame in doing that as a person with creative pursuits. You know, mm. you need to have another career often. It's not going to sustain you all the time. And it sometimes looks like other people don't have a career, other careers that are supporting their artistic work. And I think that's probably not the case. They're just presenting one aspect of their life to you. <laughs> <laughs> to the hundred percent we've all got like I do little social media jobs on the side we all have these things that pay the bills because yeah. this podcast I'll be totally real at the moment it's not earning me money it's very new I'm trying to build up a follower base but I think that's so true we put out what we want to receive back in terms of work and we just keep that all the little stuff that we don't really want anyone to know about <laughs> to the side yeah so before we get into your book my last question on this is what does uh, a week of care look like for your son does he go to daycare a bit is it grandparents he's at kindergarten now three-year-old kindergarten four days a week my dad picks him up one day a week and takes him back to my parents house so that I don't have to like rush back from across town to get him yeah because kinder's not a full day is it it's not it, like nine actually to five. the kindergarten he's at is a full day thankfully oh, amazing yeah it's a great it's just an incredible community kindergarten it's amazing and then um, I have a babysitter or nanny who picks him up one other day because I'm also working across town those days and she cooks him dinner gives him a bath and so that by the time I get home he's sort of ready for bed and those two days of help after hours as well are just invaluable mm. and then to the other two days I work for myself at my studio which is local so it's near his kindergarten so I can drop him off a bit later and pick him up a bit earlier yeah so I've been doing about four days of care I'd say oh god I don't know since maybe he was one and a half or two or something like that because I needed to get the book done and there was no way I could write it just one day a week and what about the creativity side of motherhood? It's one thing to sit down and smash out a spreadsheet in half an hour. It's quite another to be creative. How does that pressure present itself to you or how do you work with that pressure? Yeah, I'll tell you how you do it, Lucinda. You have a, a <laughs> uh, book deadline, a contract, and your publisher says to you that is the drop-dead deadline and there are no extensions and the, the fear of God gets into you and then you write every day oh, that wow. you have a moment to write. Now, I, I think deadlines are an incredible gift. If you can get one, an external deadline from someone because someone needs something from you, that is the way to get writing done and also it's my job it's my yeah, career you've been doing it for long job. enough that you know how to do it and I, I didn't struggle with the procrastination element of it with this project I think because I felt like it one I had this very serious deadline of a big publishing company publishing my book and I did not want to disappoint them and two I really enjoyed writing it I felt like it just kind of flowed out of me in a way that plays hadn't for a long time. I'd been feeling quite stuck around my playwriting. And I think part of that was a lot of the time I was writing plays for free with the expectation that they may or may not be produced. But this was a thing that was actually going to be a real book that is actually a book now. And it was prose. It was something I didn't have to make up. It wasn't a fictional world like theatre was or screen is. So it was a relief to just be writing the truth, I guess, and not have to fabricate a world. Uh, mm. I'm not saying there weren't days when it wasn't hard, when uh, writing a book is an insane amount of work. You don't realise how much work it is until you do it. And especially in the in the copy editing and the editing process and the proofing, pro every sort of stage of the mm. process is 
intensive but I think it's sort of like when you write a book it's also a master class in writing a book when you've never written one before so you learn a lot as you're doing it as well but yeah I I loved it I really loved writing it and it was a just extraordinary to have something to do during those two years I'm not saying we're post-pandemic but during that time to have a creative project to focus on outside of the kind of bleakness of our lives of the lockdowns <laughs> and the struggle of that that we were all going through to have something that I was really motivated about that I had to get done that people were waiting for people were excited about you know people were enthusiastic mm. about reading this book and I think that's been really heartening to me too that a lot of women want to hear this story um, not just people who want to be solo mothers, but a lot of people want to know about this path and what, how did you get here and why did you do it and are you crazy, you know, that kind of stuff. So I feel like shedding light on this story for other people has been really important. You're sharing a story that has been underrepresented, so I imagine that felt like a real privilege. And also I guess as a writer, everyone that's a writer pretty much wants to write a book one day. So that I imagine those things really drove you forward too. Can you actually tell us about the book now? Yes, of course. So Inconceivable is a memoir and it's about um, sort of waking up to that longing to have a baby, as I described earlier, and how that sort of catapulted me out of one life and into another, which is back in Australia, um, dating and sort of being on the roller coaster and, you know, being in the sort of hellscape of online dating, <laughs> doing the roller coaster of dating and simultaneously pursuing this journey of whether or not I could become a solo parent via donor sperm and you know along the way there were some obstacles to that um, within my own family there was quite a lot of opposition to me choosing solo parenthood so I write a lot about my relationship to my mother um, and you know what we went through and I also think when you become a mother or you're planning to become a mother you often have to wrestle with your own relationship to your mother <laughs> and your own parents so I think it has a universality in that sense. Yeah, and I think the book is really for anyone who's living a life they never conceived of. I think so often in adulthood we find ourselves, you know, widowed, divorced, going through IVF, dating a different sexuality to the, the one that we thought we would or whatever it is. We have this fairy tale sort of projected ideal for our adult life and so often the reality doesn't end up being that. And so... I think it really speaks to that idea of taking hold of your life and despite what other people might think. What would you tell Ali, who is starting to jostle with the idea of becoming a parent, about the Ali of today? What would you want that person that was a little bit stressed about the whole thing to know about Ali of today? I think I really thought at the beginning this is kind of a bit of a loser path, like... <laughs> This is this is an admission of failure. This is a sign of defeat to choose this option. That the only reason I would do this is because I hadn't found a man who'd love me enough to have a baby with me or something like that. And on the other side of it, I feel this great sense of agency and freedom and liberation from those those thoughts and from uh, liberation from the sort of pressure to find someone to be with, liberation from waiting for someone else to make my decisions about my reproductive future. So I was waiting for a man to say, yes, we can have a baby together or waiting for, yeah, someone to change their mind or, you know, waiting for someone to be on the right timeline with me. And 
it was incredibly freeing not to have to wait anymore to be able to pursue this thing that I knew I wanted and and that I knew I wanted now without waiting for something that may or may not appear later, which was, and Mm. also it was just so evident to me that whilst romance could wait, having a baby couldn't. And I wish that women were more educated about that. I think, you know, we need to be taught from a young age, like not just how not to get pregnant, but how, you know, our fertility is a window that is not as great as we think. And that IVF is not always the solution. We can't just delay, delay, delay. And there needs to be more education around that, I think. We're so hard on ourselves because as soon as I heard about your story and found you on Instagram, I was just feeling empowered and like, that's just an incredible story and what a great choice to go after what you wanted. So it's amazing that you ever thought that loser mindset, because I don't think anyone on the outside would ever think that. My last question for you is what could we all do for single parents to get around them and create that village like family? And what are the best types of support you've ever received, whether it's been cooked for having your child picked up from daycare, all those sorts of things? Mm, That's a really good question. I think there are very small ways that you can help people that you don't always realise are possible. Even things like opening a door for someone (laughs) when they have a pram or the other day I was carrying all this stuff and I was carrying my kid and I was trying to get inside the front door and this guy who lived in my apartment building was just standing behind me with his key and I just thought, what you know I was sort of like tongue-tied I couldn't believe that he wasn't offering to unlock the door for me but I just don't think he realized you know and I think sometimes people just don't realize how much you've got in your arms you know it's basically like you're armless when you have a kid and so people should should, if people saw a person without arms they would help them but when people see people Mm. with a child they don't always think oh I should help that person um so I actually wrote an article about this recently about the village mentality of raising children and people got very offended and outraged that I was suggesting that, you know, we should help each other. I don't, I don't know. It touched on something, touched on something, a raw nerve with people. I think they felt like they were being attacked or something, but I wasn't saying mortgage your house, give all your money away to a single parent. I was just saying, you know, we could all benefit from helping each other and yeah and like you you too the people that are reading this and being enraged like we could all help each other (laughs) I mean I think if you have a friend who has a kid a single parent you know they don't have to be a solo parent but a single parent and you know you might have kids yourself you might not you might have like an hour on a Saturday where you were just going to lie around and scroll on Instagram you could text them and say hey do you want me to like come over and look after your kid for an hour or like take your kid for a walk for an hour And that person will be so grateful to you for that kind of concrete offer of help. Or, you know, you could say, um, I could pick up your groceries for you on the way through. I know you did an online shop or I'll bring a coffee to your house because I'm coming to your house. Like that person hasn't had time to go out and get a coffee or whatever. And I do have friends who do that. And it's so like, it's just so heartwarming when someone says, I'm coming to your place. Can I bring you a chai or can I bring you all this? And it's just such a relief. You think, yes, I do need that thing, actually. Um, yeah, it is, is those little things, isn't it? It doesn't have to be these grand gestures. It's so small and um, we can all get better at it. And it's even putting your child in a car seat. That can be a struggle when you've got stuff in your hands. So if someone can either hold the bags or hold the kid or hold the door, whatever it is, it's just, I think it's those really micro gestures of help that, make your entire life easier and make you feel seen you know it's like oh this person sees sees what I'm carrying recently 
I was way down the coast with some friends and my friends were like sort of living this like lovely, glorious, child-free life. And they were like having naps and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, guys, do you think I could have a nap so you could look after my kid? You know, like and they were like, uh, they looked really baffled and confused. And I was like, I just don't think it has occurred to people that I'm the only one here, like having to look after this child and I can't take a break at all. So sometimes it's just thinking like, what are the things that I would like that I get to do that are easy for me and just offering those little teeny, teeny, tiny things to the other person who's parenting. Mm, It's amazing when someone's aware, even if they're not a parent yet too, because sometimes it's really hard to name the help that you need, but it just goes such a long way. I've thought of one other thing, Lucinda, because this is like my, (laughs) this is my dream. That if someone comes to my house, they'll offer to cook me dinner. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I just, there's a lot of times where I have people over and I make dinner and I think, oh, it'd be really nice if when you came over, you like, or if, you know, order takeaway, whatever, but it, like, I'm trying to put my kid to bed. It would be great if you could make the dinner instead. And yes. that just, like that is just gold, you know, but it's all yeah, a man. You're doing all the hosting. Me dinner and I will, I will fall in love with him. You'll be his. Yeah. So can you tell us once more for anyone that may have forgotten, tuned out or whatever, what your book is called, where we can find it and also where they can find you on Instagram? Sure. So the book is called Inconceivable. The subtitle is Heartbreak, Bad Dates and Finding Solo Motherhood. And it should be out through all good bookstores from the end of March. And you can also buy it online if you just Google Inconceivable. Um, you know, through various local booksellers or through Amazon or Big W or whoever you want to purchase a book from. Uh, there will also be an audiobook and an ebook coming out at the same time if you prefer to listen to the book. I'm not reading it, but this fantastic um, actress is reading the book. And I'm on Instagram at Alexandra Collier Writes. Amazing. Well, I absolutely love your story and I don't know if you know what an amazing thing that you're doing for other parents that want to take the path you have, but you are. So thank you so much for being here and for your book and what you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.